Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. This lecture by Tom Nichols, held on December 9, 2016 at the National Gallery of Art, celebrates the publication of Renaissance Art in Venice, From Tradition to Individualism. Nichols describes how the spread of Renaissance values led to the development of artistic invention in Venice. However, this inventiveness continued to relate to ideas of more traditional corporate and public ideals of Venetianness. Nichols also discusses some of the choices raised by writing a history of Renaissance art in Venice and how these were resolved. Okay, so this lecture, um, I've kind of thought about uh, doing it around the book that I published about three months ago that um, uh, Peter, Peter mentioned. Uh, and this book um, is um, uh, and was kind of presented to me when I was asked to write it as uh, a book that was going to cover, you know, a few centuries uh, based on the art of Venice. Um, and of course, as soon as I was asked to do this uh, by Lawrence King Publishers, uh, I started to worry and to panic because there were these guys. <laughs> uh, and uh, they had uh, already... Uh, 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 presented some fabulous scholarship uh, over the decades. Um, these um, introductory books, call them what you will, they're not just introductory books, any of these actually. They help to shape uh, the subject of uh, Venetian Renaissance art for an international audience. Uh, and each one of those, these books has uh, much that's original to say in them. So uh, my challenge really was to... Um, was to, to, to provide a new history uh, of the art uh, of Venice. Uh, I had to not assume uh, necessarily uh, a wide knowledge of uh, Venetian Renaissance art, a scholarly knowledge, but at the same time I, hadn't, I, I shouldn't patronise and I had to move it at good pace. And that was part of the kind of difficulty of thinking about, about this book. Also, well, what, what's the point of a new book? What, what new is there to say? Haven't these books covered the material very, very well? So these were the kind of issues that I immediately was confronted with. And so I'm going to get these, um, these hallowed books off the screen fairly quickly. Otherwise, I'll start to, <laughs> start to, start to panic further. Um, one thing that those books had done, um, they had maybe looked at painting and they'd maybe looked at architecture. They hadn't necessarily brought them together. And I thought one of the things I wanted to do was to try and discuss uh, both the famous paintings of Venice, but also some of its great architectural achievements. And I wanted to look at sculpture too, so I was trying to do a lot. I only had about maybe 55 to 60,000 words, which is quite a short book. It sounds a lot, but it's quite short. Um, one of the things that uh, Francesco Petrarca said in the 14th century was that Venice was another world. Um, and in fact, um, one of my favourite amongst those books I've just shown you was Patricia Fortuny-Brown, your own Patricia Fortuny-Brown's book, a wonderful book. Um, on the art of Renaissance Venice. Um, and she'd kind of begun with this idea of Petrarch um, um, uh, that uh, in the 14th century, he'd said that Venice is another world. It's not like anywhere else. It's completely separate. It's completely different. And actually, uh, Patricia's book um, developed that theme, actually, uh, in some ways. And what she did was, instead of giving a chronological account, she, she gave a thematic account, um, picking out key themes and looking at the entire kind of visual culture of Venice. It was a wonderful expansion. There were some great choices of objects that she used. And um, she, uh, at the same time, um, followed through this idea that Venice was a, uh, another world, not a world like any other world. I keep thinking about this, and I thought, well, maybe Venice is not so much of another world. Maybe it's a, a mediator between worlds, between East and West, for example. 
um, when anyone who's been to Venice will, will feel the kind of easternness of the, uh, much of the architecture that you see in some of the famous buildings um, without quite being able to put your finger on it. it it's there as a kind of uh, a sense of uh, the East. On the other hand, uh, the Renaissance, well, surely that, at least in Italy, uh, owes something to mainland Italy, to the westward direction. Um, so that, in an artistic and aesthetic sphere, would, would be my view of this, except, um, <clears throat> you know, we also need to look at it in political terms and, and in terms of economics. Because, of course, um, Venice is a great entrepot. It's a market between East and West. Um, and so I tried to develop this more kind of dialectical view of Venice, if you like, in, in the book that I, I published, went on to write. Um, in the book, I started off um, with two, two of the great buildings that in a way kind of symbolize Venice. You can't really do anything else. Um, um, and I'm talking here, of course, about St. Mark's, the Basilica of St. Mark's, and the Ducal Palace uh, by the side, the Palazzo Ducale, uh, by the side uh, of it. Uh, anyone who's gone to Venice will have seen these buildings, kind of venerated these buildings. I was interested in the concept of tradition in Venice because when, when you go to Venice, you feel this kind of weight of the past. You feel that there's this kind of backward orientation towards something old, something ancient, something hallowed. And um, I feel this particularly in this building that we're, we're peering at here. Uh, if some of my slides look a bit poor, I'm going to apologize for them in advance, uh, um, but I hope they're not too grainy. Some of them will be better than others. Um, and I'm sorry for that. But looking at this here, um, we see this building, uh, and it seems to evoke, as I said, this sense of the East with these wonderful domes, <laughs> um, uh, something Byzantine. And, of course, we remember that Venice was, for a long time, part of the Byzantine mm. Empire. Um, we have to go a little bit nearer. 1204, things begin to shift a little bit with that crusade there, which Venice had taken its part uh, in and had actually uh, got a lot of plunder back from uh, the Byzantine uh, world and erected it uh, in and around St. Mark's. Uh, I'm not saying anything very original here, I'm aware of that, but basically that, that, um, that facade is kind of plastered with the plunder, if you like, from the decaying uh, Byzantine Empire. Now, uh, Byzantium comes to an end in... Um, 1453, uh, and uh, we'll come back to that point uh, later in this talk. Um, but clearly, um, the, this sense of connection with uh, Byzantium is, is key to this building. Uh, an important point to remember is that Venice does not have a classical past, and perhaps this is one of the reasons why it's orientated towards the past. And of course, uh, Pat Brown has, has described this fantastically in another book that she wrote on this top very topic. But um, the past is, 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 is deeply significant for Venice, and in a way, the Venetians are very active in creating myths about their own past. They're very free with the fact. Everything seems to end with Venice, or with the victory of Venice. Uh, and actually, the first part of my book, I would say the first three or four chapters of my book, are kind of examining the way in which um, Venice is a kind of cultural horizon. Everything leads to it. Uh, actually, it's a very eclectic tradition. Up until around 1500, it's particularly able to absorb seemingly contrary uh, different styles and put them together. 
Um, so um, this is, um, we're looking here at St. Mark's, of course, uh, and this is the, the major basilica in Venice, but it's not the cathedral. And if you look, sorry, I'm pressing the wrong thing, I'll get it right next time. You look just to the, to the right edge there, you see this kind of wonderful Gothic gateway, the Porta della Carta, uh, and that's, that joins, Ven that joins uh, St. Mark's Cathedral onto this building. Now we're watching, this is the Ducal Palace in Venice, of course, and we're looking at the, uh, the south front uh, of, of, the, of the building here. Uh, but St. Mark's is, by about 1440, joined up uh, literally, physically, to this, uh, to the Ducal Palace, uh, and that says something about the whole uh, kind of way in which Venetians thought about their religion. Um, this was very much mediated through the state, uh, the Ducal Palace. This was where the Doge lived, and where the government of Venice was enacted. <coughs> Looking at this building, it seems to kind of float uh, above the waters of the Bacino de Mare in front of it. This large area of water. Um, and the myriad reflections seem to be picked up uh, in those tiles you can see above the two rows of columns there. Um, um, Deborah Howard and others have noticed the kind of Islamic sources for perhaps some of the decoration on this building, this repeated row of, uh, of decorations above the second arcade, for example, that seem to recall Moorish uh, screens. There's Islamic elements in lots of aspects to this building. But it also tells us a lot about Venetian government. This is the kind of town hall of Venice, and it looks like no other town hall. Um, it's, um, in, 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 in one sense, it's openness, I think, is what I, I, I'm, I'm struck by, uh, with these two uh, lower arcades that seem to kind of offer an entrance into the interior. It's horizontalized shape that was, um, that was developed um, through the course of the 14th century in accordance with um, the establishment of the Great Council of Venice, this, this, this uh, group uh, of elite patrician families who came to dominate. dominate. But there was a lot of them, uh, and they had to be housed in the hall of the Great Council. Uh, the first four windows you see to the, to the left uh, housed this Great Council Hall. So there's ways in which uh, the kind of Republic of Venice, for this was a republic with no court, uh, are expressed in the kind of delicacy and the openness of this, this building. Uh, there are various associations I'm suggesting there. One of the things I always like to look at is the way in which these kind of crenellations along the top uh, remind you in a kind of vague way of a castle. But they're like an almost ironic reference to a castellation. This is very definitely not a castle. Uh, and it doesn't look anything like uh, the town halls in many other um, Italian um, uh, courts, for example, or even, e indeed even for in the Florentine Republic. It's very unlike the Palazzo Vecchio in Florence. If you go into the realm of domestic architecture, uh, this type of palace architecture that developed in the course of the 13th century, and uh, by the time we're looking at these buildings here, we're in the middle of the 15th, we're two centuries on, um, you have a similar set of points. Um, interesting to get inside the, the head of the patrician uh, nobleman in Venice, one of the members of the Great Council I mentioned a minute ago. Uh, and this is the car, house of Car Foscari, Francesco Foscari being this fantastically dynamic and powerful doge in the middle of the 15th century. Uh, this is his palace we're looking at here. Uh, importantly, though, we need to see that it is attached to two other palaces um, that were on the curve of the Grand Canal that were owned by the Justiniani family. 
Uh, and the, this is a kind of block of palaces that are joined together as if to express a kind of common uh, commonality between uh, the doge's palace, if you like. Yes, it's a little bit bigger. It has small windows and it has this thing. We'll come back to that in a moment. It's relief. Um, but essentially, it's the same style. There's nothing kind of distinguishing that style of palace from uh, these, these, these ones, these Giustiniani palaces to the, to the right. Uh, and this is a Casa Fondaco. This is a, um, this is a, this is a, a mixture of a warehouse and a palace. And that seems to say so much about uh, this rather anomalous uh, uh, idea of the Venetian noble, the noble who traded. Uh, I mean, everywhere else in Europe, uh, this was a dreadful faux pas, of course, and, and nobility was proved by land and by arms. But here, uh, this is in Venice, in mercantile Venice, that traded east and west. Uh, this was, this, this, this was uh, uh, de rigueur. This was no problem at all. Uh, the goods would come in, perhaps, and be stored in these lower, uh, this lower area uh, of, the, of the palace. Uh, and th that was to be distinguished from the Piani Nobile, uh, the, the, the major floor above. Um, just to finish here, just to see, I mean, you can see how, uh, how much this kind of um, decorative work here, these quatrefoils, owe to the Ducal Palace. And so there's a kind of way in which the doge is kind of repeating the Ducal Palace in his private residence. And there's maybe not much of a distinction in his mind between his, his, his private and his public identities. Above uh, is, the, is this relief, and we're seeing the beginnings of what looks like the Renaissance. But what I wanted to point out, uh, these, these putty, these nude putty holding the urns uh, in, in between, the, uh, the, in between the, the arms, the family arms of, of Foscari, um, is um, what I wanted to point out was how, the, in a sense, this doesn't really disrupt the gothicity of this style. Uh, and actually, we see this, this is my kind of one of the themes I harp on about, is just how the Renaissance seems to kind of emerge, Renaissance forms without disruption. Um, to the, the traditional forms of Venice. Uh, they seem to be quite happy nestling in there with Byzantine and Gothic and Islamic references uh, in a kind of uh, cultural kind of mix. There's no sense of, of tension, really, to my mind. And sometimes I think people have tried to kind of emphasise the tension. Um, um, I think the tension does come into play, but not uh, until after 1500. So another example of this, in one sense, is when we turn to the greatest set of painters in the later 15th century, the Bellini family. Remember, we have Jacopo Bellini, the father, and the two sons, Gentile and Giovanni. Now, I'm putting aside a recent theory that Giovanni was Jacopo's brother, uh, published in <laughs> Renaissance Quarterly. Um, uh, it's an interesting article, but I'm, 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 I'm sticking with the usual uh, genealogy for the moment. <clears throat> What Jacobo is really famous for, this is the father, is these fantastic sketchbooks. There's two of them, one in the British Museum, one in the Louvre. Uh, and these are absolutely wonderful uh, drawing books, uh, absolutely staggering. The range of subjects, the detail, uh, seemingly done independently of painting commissions. In fact, the range of subjects and ideas they don't really reflect, they're not really reflected in contemporary painting. There's not enough, that they, they the contemporary painting tends to fall into much narrower types. <clears throat> but my point here is not to harp on about uh, Jacobo, who is certainly a finding father of Renaissance art in some ways in Venice, but to notice just how, in a sense, uh, his works could be used within a workshop 
context. Uh, and the Venetian workshop was with a particularly strong institution. And it worked through the father's ability to teach his sons, uh, particularly through drawing. Sometimes it's imagined that Venetian arts and Venetian artists knew nothing of, or were very uninterested in drawing. This was something that uh, 16th century Florentines often said, particularly Giorgio Vasari. But <coughs> clearly, we have two very important drawing books here. Sorry, I've pressed the wrong button. Uh, here. Uh, and I'm just showing you uh, uh, one instance in which drawing seems to have underpinned a painting. There were others. Um, and more than one painting, in fact. Um, we can find other, a very famous Pietà by Bellini in Milan now that's also based on this drawing by his father. Um, what, um, what may be happening here, and I, 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 I don't pretend to know entirely, but I think that maybe all three artists are involved in the creation of this work. Um, perhaps um, it was Jacopo who provided the design based on the right side of this double-page spread, um, and perhaps it's Gentile, who, uh, Gentile who, who, who paints these rather tight figures to either side, uh, and perhaps this little area here has something of the younger artist Giovanni in it. Um, these are questions for attribution and difficult questions to answer. My point really is just the way in which this, this kind of family work could still, um, could still arrive, and, and a kind of limitation on the individual that's implicit in nearly everything I've said so far, actually, about all the works I've discussed. There's a kind of implicit limit to um, the extent to which we are looking at uh, an individualistic culture. This is a culture of communal activity and shared values. Now, of course, <coughs> in most histories of art, and in most histories of Venetian art, uh, this man, Giovanni Bellini, the younger son of Jacopo, is going to change all that. Um, and there's so much truth in that, in that, in that statement. Yet, um, there was a time when, in the scholarship, you find a straightforward idea that um, the naturalistic style of Giovanni Bellini um, is the beginning of the Renaissance and that he rejects, opposes um, the styles that came before. I'm not really sure I think that that follows. Um, there can be lots of changes within a style without it kind of finally bursting, as it were, the, the bubble of a particular cultural form. So, um, yes, we can look at the fabulous uh, Davis Madonna here in New York, which I was um, actually viewing in the flesh the other day, um, and say, OK, this does not really look like a medieval uh, Madonna and child anymore, particularly these... A strange kind of paleness of the tunic. Uh, I don't know whether that's the result of overcleaning, but certainly it's a, it almost looks like marble, uh, and uh, and it fits the kind of funereal sense of this kind of entire painting. These tubular folds of drapery, which remind us so much of sculpture, uh, and of course, perhaps as I've always said, uh, um, the works by Donatello, the great Donatello that uh, the, uh, the young Giovanni Bellini had seen in um, Padua. And, uh, and, and, of course, his brother-in-law, Andrea Mantegna, uh, to whom he was, by this time, uh, related. So, um, 
you can maybe see, uh, you know, follow that line and, 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 and see the kind of difference. But just as interesting is a, a work like this, the Madonna Greca, uh, discussed uh, brilliantly by, by Peter Humphrey in his book on Venice. Um, and, but this kind of um, removal back, um, this is a later painting, but back towards a Byzantine mode, back towards the gold of St. Mark's and the way in which in oil... Um, these kind of edges here simulate um, the, the, the mosaics, the, 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 the tesserae of, the, of, of, of St. Mark's itself, and the way in which the face is narrowed with this, um, this long nose and these very symmetrical eyelids, this small, tightly closed mouth. All of this is a very deliberate return to the Byzantine mode, um, but using oil paint. Elements of this, of course, tell you it's something different. Look at the way he's handled the feet there. That's a piece of fantastic Renaissance illusionism, um, which you don't f find that kind of thing so much attempted uh, in Byzantine works. But we know that after 1453, the fall of the Byzantine Empire, um, that uh, there was a whole phase of Venetian culture that was what we can call Byzantineizing, that went back to... Um, uh, the roots of Venice. And this, you know, this work here, which I think arrived in 1204, but was held uh, in St. Mark's and processed around the city quite regularly, um, became a, um, you know, became a very important work. This work could work miracles. And so there's an interesting way that Bellini wants, it seems to me, to link his own uh, very progressive art to the past. He doesn't want to, br uh, to burst the bubble. Uh, he wants to, as it were, uh, connect just in the way that the, the, the builders of St. Mark wanted, St. Mark's wanted to connect uh, with the past. What about a, a, a wonderful building like this? Uh, one of possibly my favourite um, uh, 15th century building in, in, in Venice uh, is this mar marvellous um, piece of architecture by uh, Mauro Caducci originally from Lombardy, but who came to Venice and uh, made a fantastic series of innovations in, um, in, um, in architecture. He used this Istrian white stone in this church, uh, as opposed to the warm brickwork that you might expect. He's often seen as a kind of precursor to Palladio in the, in the following century. You can see why. The purity of this colour against the water is striking when you approach the island of San Michele, where this is on, uh, it's a very isolated spot on the way to Murano, if ever you go out that way. Um, there's a kind of avoidance of the, the kind of fussy, tracery, delicate, there were repetitions of the architecture we've seen so far, very simple, um, symmetrical uh, apertures that kind of echo each other around a central uh, line. But actually, if you look at the bottom part of this church, it's a much more... Um, uh, it almost looks Florentine with this rustications here. I'm thinking of the uh, Palace by Alberti called the Palazzo Rucellai, for example, in Florence. It may be that he, he knows about that, that effect. And certainly it, it, that, that, that kind of block-like um, uh, element of wall here, um, you can see um, how um, Caduce is aware of contemporary Florentine building and the Renaissance of the Florentines, but not the top. I think that the, the, above this line here, above the entablature, I think you move back into 
uh, a kind of Venetian style of architecture. These lunettes reminding us, uh, broken lunettes sometimes, reminding us of uh, the facade of St. Mark's itself. And the delicate flutings and the colorations of the marbling here uh, are, are all kind of a play on the surface around this central shape of the circle. Uh, he plays with different kind of possibilities of parts of circles in your mind. And, and he does so uh, in a very sophisticated way. It's what makes it such a wonderful building. But I, I, I wonder whether that really is, is his, in a sense, his way of making this quite new style acceptable to, to Venice. And once again, we're back with the, my point about Bellini, uh, Giovanni Bellini, is that, that there is, within 15th century uh, Venetian art, this sense of the past uh, as a kind of encompassing thing, uh, not something that you're going to kind of abandon. And maybe the, 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 the most kind of clearest example of this, of this process um, is, is this, this great painting by uh, Gentile Bellini, a very famous painting of 1496. Now, this is a, a huge history painting, an historia, um, and it's, it was originally painted for the school of San Giovanni Evangelista, uh, the Scuole Grandi di San, San, San Giovanni Evangelista, St. John the Evangelist, uh, and it's one of the, the large schools of Venice. Schools, what are they? Well, they are essentially uh, lay confraternities that uh, people could join who were excluded from the patrician class or caste that we were looking at before. Uh, merchants, rentiers, very wealthy people, but locked out of the political process. And Venice is very clever at balancing uh, interest groups in order to maintain its stability and its famous stability against, say, Florence or many of the other uh, states in Italy and beyond. Uh, and so uh, here we have this kind of sense of a time-honoured scene, uh, a scene that could be repeated year after year. The uh, school itself, with their brothers here dressed up in these fine robes, processing along with their relic, uh, a, a piece of the bones of St. John the Evangelist. And they're going round in a procession, and they're going to kind of join these guys around here, who are the other schools, uh, other, the large schools, the Scuole Grande, as they're called. And they're processing around in St. Mark's Square. We're looking at this enormous church of St. Mark's here, meticulously painted by Gentile. He's got a very meticulous technique. It's not, not, not really like his brother's. Uh, and um, so this is a, um, you know, a kind of a fundamental image of Venice's civic rituals, its, its kind of sense of itself and what it must do. What I really think is interesting about it is the fact that if you get to there, I'm just about doing it, can you see him? There is a, there is a doge. <laughs> he's got his, he's got his, um, he's got his fur wrap on and his hat actually, his corno. You can see that. It's just, he's just kind of in that, in that. I'm not moving away because I'm not allowed to. I have to stay here, <laughs> otherwise. But that's him, and you're thinking, my God, that's the most powerful man in Venice. What's he doing all the way over there? <laughs> why isn't he in the foreground? And 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 by and you know, why isn't he here? Uh, and <clears throat> that kind of, in a way sums up um, a Venetian kind of sense of itself. The, ve the, the, the doge follows along in procession behind his social inferiors, and he does so very happily, and that's in the order of things, because the Venetians don't believe in a court. They don't believe in uh, a courtly family dominating. They want, uh, they want a republican system. And so that's a fascinating aspect uh, of this painting. 
One thing to notice about it also is that it looks a little bit like he's kind of mapped the space. He's, he, it's, it's an absolutely realistic depiction. And indeed, some of these, um, some of these, uh, these mosaics above the doors in St. Mark's, we only know about them through this painting. Uh, only this one, I think, still survives. The others don't. Um, so the accuracy with which he's recorded the details on the front of St. Mark's and the kind of domination that St. Mark's had. Notice how the relic is right near the central portal, as if to say, this school, it may be full of non-nobles, but they are absolutely patriotic. In fact, probably more so than the patricians, or at least as much so. So there's lots of different things to say about this painting, uh, um, but uh, one thing one would notice is that it uh, isn't actually accurate. The bell tower has been moved back so that it doesn't interfere with the view of the Porta della Carta, the point at which the, um, the, the church is joined to the palace. So he, actually Bellini has moved things around in order to create this almost mythic um, version of Venetian power, Venetian piety, uh, and Venetian culture with, it, with all its kind of intricacy. So we kind of come to a turning point, and in my book, you come to that turning point at the end of a chapter, and then you come on this guy. Uh, and in a way, I follow Vasari, who had noticed that Giorgione, or Big George, as he's known to his friends, he, um, he was a turning point in the history of art. Um, and that's, that was said by Vasari um, with great uh, intuition, in a way, even though he wasn't really clear what Giorgione had painted or what it meant. He knew that... This, uh, this art of this man, who lived to be, what, 31, 32 years old, had changed uh, art in Venice forever. And I think he was right about that. Um, he, this is the point. I'm not being particularly challenging in saying this, but we need to think about what it was that he changed. And I think one of the things you notice when you look at Giorgione's paintings, and I'm, I am putting in as many Washington pictures as I can here. So these are just hanging upstairs. I was looking at the other day. Um, is that he, he works on a small scale. And he, he, he seems, you know, whereas Gentile Bellini gets pretty large um, and um, there's a kind of public face to Venetian art, this is a private world that we're in here straight away. He makes the figures within these smaller spaces smaller. You know, they're small, relatively small compared to the landscape. So the landscape, the surrounding, in uh, the case of this early work here, becomes uh, somehow as significant as the figures. You can't help moving, your eye can't help moving around these interesting, somewhat underdefined shapes. And it's interesting that the landscapes of Giorgione are actually relatively undefined when you start looking through them. Yes, there are buildings in them. Yes, there are pathways through them sometimes. But the amount of visual information you're given is reduced. And that, I think, is, is curious. Um, and uh, in a way, it suggests that Giorgione has, um, has, has, has kind of removed himself from the mainstream of Venetian art. In a painting like this um, famous little picture, uh, it looks very big on the screen, but actually it's very small, uh, these kind of tendencies towards what you might call ambiguity, vagueness, I don't quite know how to put it, uh, are kind of seen uh, to the full, and um, we, such that we don't really know what the subject of The Tempest is, 
Uh, and that seems to be deliberate. It's not that he was being careless. Um, Vasari said that he only wanted to make a show of his art and he didn't care what he was painting. And that was a bit of a faux pas in a tradition that was all about explicating the subject of a painting. But instead, you get this exquisite work of art, this kind of signature work by an artist who's original, who paints landscapes, who paints storms, he paints figures in an ambiguous relation to, to one another. We don't know who they are. Art historians have loved this. You know, they've, they've just spent whole careers um, arguing for one interpretation or another. They're going to pin down the subject matter of the Tempest. And, um, you know, the point is, did he want, is there a subject matter? Did he want that uh, subject matter to be pinned down? Are they like picture puzzles that you look into? Uh, and you, you maybe get a hint that this is, I mean, one of the most recent, and I have to say slightly absurd uh, uh, ideas about this is that it was not, not that recent, actually, now. Uh, but it's basically Adam and Eve after the fall. Um, and this is Eve with a kind of young baby. Uh, these are kind of a reference to the fig leaves. Um, <laughs> they don't really look, that doesn't really look much like Adam. You know? uh, I can't really see this. Um, but anyway... Um, it seems that we are encouraged, invited into these paintings. The viewer becomes important. The world of art is with us in some way that it potentially isn't in the 15th century. And I think that's part of what, uh, what uh, Giorgione does. He, he kind of indicates himself through his paintings, and he indicates the pleasure that a sophisticated, perhaps a, uh, patrician um, uh, collector, uh, a connoisseur of art, connoisseur of texts, connoisseur of classicism perhaps would enjoy looking at and these small scale works were, 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 were precious almost from the moment they were made, they were unique you know, they defined themselves against the traditional kind of four square types of 15th century art Walking through the door was the great Titian and, um, and in this sense uh, he's a fellow pupil of Giovanni Bellini in the workshop of <coughs> of Giovanni Bellini, a fellow pupil alongside Giorgione. Um, but um, he walks through the door, but in a way his art is, is, is different, and, and the sheer scale of this work, this early work by Titian, um, is, is significant. He, he, and the energy of the forms within it too, uh, and their relationship to, I think, to the wider Renaissance as it's kind of developing in central Italy. And I'm thinking here, I, I can't help thinking of Raphael when I look at this figure with these, uh, these curling uh, <coughs> kind of entrapments of drapery that she, that she has there. And I think, I think um, you know, the kind of, the, the kind of energy of, of, of Titian uh, is of a different type to Giorgione, which is very dreamy and retrospective and, and, and about withdrawal. In a sense, Titian's a very different personality. But in a way, what's common to both artists is they both move us beyond Venice. We don't really need to refer to Venice so much in looking at these pictures. We can't do it so directly. Now, there's the problem. Somebody's saying... What about colour? Somebody's bound to think that. They're all superb colourists. And that, you know, is true. There are the most astonishing number of blues in this painting, even if it has been somewhat overcleaned. Um, you know, you can start kind of getting these different um, subtleties um, through here uh, of, of the blues that Titian will use. And the colour is still part of his dynamic mode. Um, but that would be to, we wouldn't want to forget the dynamism and complexity and daring of the formal treatment of those two uh, key figures there, Bacchus 
and uh, his chosen one, Ariadne, kind of pinned against the side of the, the canvas as he decides that he's his, uh, she's his next victim, well, victim or lover, call it what you will. Um, so uh, this, you know, there's a sense in which Titian's career uh, immediately moves us beyond the, the kind of the, the orbit of the Bellini, um, this relatively kind of Venetian world that they had occupied. And this kind of thing um, was uh, this kind of movement away from Venice itself was also um, was also very evident in the uh, architecture of his very good friend Jacopo Sansovino. Um, who was originally from Florence and had um, gone to Rome and then turned up in Venice at the sack of Rome about 1527. He then went on to remodel the centre of Venice um, it, with using this fantastic uh, classical vocabulary of forms. Now, there are plenty of links back in these buildings to the existing buildings. Remember those double row of arcades. Uh, this is his library of St. Mark's. It's exactly opposite the um, Ducal Palace with its rows of arcades. It's just kind of here. Uh, and you can see how he's picked up on this idea of repeated elements in two rows, two columns, as it were. Um, similarly, you can find, um, you know, you can find similarities in the facade of St. Mark's with these rounded arches. Um, but, you know, these are, these are subtle architectures uh, as Sansovino, but uh, I think the general effect of his architecture is to, to make um, Venice look more like a kind of version of Rome. Interestingly enough, he's working just at the point in, uh, after which Rome has been sacked in 1527, so the opportunists in Venice are once again thinking, well, if we're not the new Byzantium, we can be the new Rome. Um, so we'll have some of that. Um, and so the Sansovino fulfills that. Uh, role. And, and a sculpture like this, um, a very sophisticated work which references, for example, Donatello's David, um, but also uh, more obviously Raphael's own Apollo, uh, known through various engravings to, to, um, to Sansovino. Um, uh, he seems to suggest now that classicism, a generalised ideal of classicism, can, can be taken as the kind of general point of reference and that the people of Venice, the Venetians, will understand this. Uh, and he kind of links, Italy, it links Venice into Italy. It links the, the move westward, if, as uh, Frederick Lane once called it, um, would, would, would be something that Sansovino was part of. Now, perhaps this was also a move towards social hierarchy and, and towards a more fixed version of the hierarchy of Venice. That's an interesting and contentious point, but it may well be that we can see a more absolutist kind of value in Venice emerging in this period. Uh, uh, the great artist Titian painted your fabulous um, uh, doge, ducal portrait here. I'm just showing it against an earlier uh, doge by Gentile Bellini. And he is, uh, you know, he, he, he is a, a doge uh, who had um, kind of led this, um, this uh, urban re regeneration in Venice um, after, uh, after the uh, a terrible war in Venice at the beginning of the 16th century. He kind of reads, leads the cultural and artistic regeneration, this doge uh, Andrea Gritti. Um, what strikes me is just how far away this fabulous portrait is. I see it as a, a posthumous portrait, perhaps painted as much as uh, eight or ten years but after uh, Greti's death. And that may have given Titian uh, more freedom uh, to, to show off his fabulous brushwork in the, uh, the kind of impasto of these uh, famous ducal buttons here, for example. Um, 
references, of course, to Michelangelo in this hand here, perhaps to the Moses by Michelangelo. This is a man of bear-like kind of individual energy. It's a very different idea from that little doge creeping along at the back of, uh, the, uh, of Gentile Bellini's uh, procession we were looking at earlier on. Uh, uh, or indeed, this uh, uh, still wonderful portrait of a doge uh, in the kind of traditional profile uh, view. Um, I mean, uh, there's, there's a great deal of naturalism in this image, and I, I, I'm very fond of it. But it, it, this, this is a kind of a servant somehow of the greater will, whereas this uh, is an individual prince uh, of uh, great uh, independent power. Now, Titian, um, Titian's place is a complex one, and there are lots of other uh, artists coming up in Venice at this time. And my, one of my more general points in my book is that the individual artist is asserting himself from the beginning of the 16th century in very new ways and creating new languages, competing languages, each artist competing with the next, uh, in a sense, to... Um, to, 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 to win commissions, to win favour, and to win fame. Uh, this new individualism within the work field of art, artists creating styles almost self-consciously against other styles and then competing. This has been the subject of a great exhibition I know in Boston not so very long ago, about six, seven years ago. Uh, and so this rivalry in Renaissance Venice, um, I think this, this, is, this is generally correct. Um, Lotto, Lorenzo Lotto, for example, responding obviously to the portraits of Titian, these fabulous uh, courtly portraits. Um, this is a, a kind of Ferrarese uh, courtier we're looking at here from Ferrara. Um, but, but kind of developing a, a different approach to the viewer, direct, intense, uh, expressive, uh, communicative, uh, rather than this rather reserved courtly sprezzatura that we see in Titian, this immediacy uh, of connection um, that we feel with this sitter here, the great, the great uh, collector, Andrea Doni. He's offering you um, a, uh, uh, an image of Diana of Ephesus, um, uh, an image of fertility, but at the same time, his hand is just caressing, I don't know if you can see it there, just caressing a cross, as if to say, um, there is something about this classical stuff. I know I love it, but, you know, um, it is <laughs> pagan. And look what happens to it. It gets torn apart. There's that side to, there's that spiritual side, if you like, to Lotto. He's one of the great artists uh, of the 16th century. And, it, and it, it's a very different kind of personality. And in some ways, of course, it reflects um, his much more limited opportunities to shine. The Titian really was the predominant figure in Venice for a good 50 or 60 years in 16th century Venice. And, uh, and many, many other artists struggled to, to, to compete with him. Um, they develop widely different styles, as I say. Sometimes I feel, and I argue this in the book, that a painting like this by Paris Bourdonnais, uh, once a pupil of Titian, uh, uh, that, that you can't get further away from Titian than, than a painting such as that by a pupil. Um, famously, Vasari tells us that um, Bordoni was a, a very, very annoyed with Titian through most of his career, particularly after he reportedly stole Titian, that is, stole one of Bordoni's rare commissions. Such was the greed of this dominant father of the art, uh, who uh, wouldn't support his pupils, wouldn't teach them. Uh, now, all of this could be Vasarian propaganda against Titian in favour of Michelangelo, but 
it's, it's nonetheless interesting to see, to look at the painting and to think, well, actually, you know, the way that Bordoni puts on paint really doesn't owe very much to Titian. On the other hand, artists reduced to painting furniture, uh, painting small, uh, sketchy, uh, but wonderful, actually, this painting by Schiavone. Um, uh, small um, furniture chests, um, lesser commissions, perhaps, painted very quickly at low, at low cost, um, but with great um, fluidity. Uh, this is a, a wonderful uh, painting of Diana and Callisto, or one that Titian himself went on to paint, of course, and I think actually had looked at this, or at least knew about this gesture. And it's, it's, um, it, 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 it's, it's what I'm trying to say is that it's not a unified school at this point. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a school that is riven, actually, with rivalries and with <coughs> dissatisfactions and with a myriad of different styles within it. The idea that Venetian art can somehow just be, oh, well, that's just colour. I mean, no, there's, there's an enormous range of different uh, things happening at this point. Going back to architecture, uh, I think um, this kind of this 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 uh, emergence of this man, uh, Andrea Palladio, is also interesting from this perspective. Uh, perhaps an outsider to Venice, um, who is who is more associated initially, at least, with Vicenza on the mainland, the terraferma, and we need to think about the terraferma's influence here. It becomes a very important part of um, of, of 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 Venetian culture, uh, and a kind of there may have been a political dominance from the centre in Venice across that area of northern Italy known as the terraferma, but in fact the cultural inter inter interchanges are much more complex. Uh, and in many ways, what happens in Venice itself is increasingly influenced by uh, the the terraferma uh, artists, the artists of Vicenza, the artists of Verona, um, the artists of, I say artist, the artists of Bassano, who we'll come to in a moment. Um, but this great uh, work, the Villa Messer, um, is one of the uh, kind of idea of kind of villa culture, one of the most famous uh, villas made for Venetian patricians, the famous uh, Daniele Barbaro and his brother Marcantonio Barbaro, uh, celebrating their, their wealth. But this is still a farmhouse, uh, and these Venetian patricians could do things here in the context of a, of a, of a beautiful country estate which they owned uh, that they couldn't do in Venice, where they were, they were more kind of repressed as individuals. So there's a sense in which the, 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 the terraferma was a kind of release from Venice and from from its, its republicanism. And I think that shows in the architecture of, uh, of Palladio uh, and the fantastic, uh, if you go inside the building, um, um, surprisingly small actually, but you go inside and uh, you find these wonderful frescoes by uh, Paolo Veronese, uh, whose name uh, as tells you that he came from Verona, probably didn't arrive in Venice until the mid-1550s actually. So this kind of classicism, this antique villa culture, but at the same time, and I've chosen this one, it's not in my book actually, but it's, I've chosen this one because I've been looking at it <laughs> for rather a long time, uh, since I got in here a few weeks ago. Uh, it's upstairs, and it's, um, it's one of the two fant fantastic Bassanos that you have uh, in, in Washington. Um, it's, uh, Bassano um, is an artist of Bassano del, del Grappa. He, it's, it's, he is from this small town 45 miles northwest of Venice, and he kind of makes himself into the town that he represents. He even paints the town gates. Um, he becomes Bassano. Um, he's often seen as a kind of local artist who just naturally painted cows and peasants in some kind of way. And that's because he was just stayed in Bassano. 
Um, I would argue something different, that actually this is this, this wonderful um, imagery of animals and, uh, and of the uh, rural life around Bassano that he includes in many of his paintings is a, a reflection, in, in a sense, of his, um, of his in individualism and of his place within this universalising Renaissance culture uh, of the of the 16th century. He's uh, immediately influential in Venice, uh, and he's very uh, au fait with all the latest um, artistic developments in Venice. You can see this in the works of Titian, Veronese, and Tintoretto um, almost immediately. In Venice itself, uh, and here we're moving through uh, onto the two figures who come to dominate, I suppose, the tradition after about 1550. Titian's still alive. Uh, I've divided my book into 25-year spans, so I'm kind of moving through uh, with an idea to finish this lecture quite soon, but um, we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll be there soon. Um, the two major figures are, um, are Tintoretto and uh, Veronese. And these artists, uh, so different, uh, their styles carefully measured against one another. There's overlaps, for sure. Uh, they look at each other's works, but they, but they remain um, distinct in terms of their approaches. The Titian, uh, sorry, Tintoretto um, paints the Last Supper again and again uh, in very dramatic, uh, popular tones uh, for parish churches, often for small confraternities devoted to the sacrament in a parish church. That's where this one came from. Um, or still is, in fact. Uh, whereas uh, the monastery, monastic paintings of Veronese, uh, these large, um, grandiose, uh, very kind of classical, but at the same time very ideal uh, kind of uh, feasts, uh, plenty of food there for everyone to eat. Um, so different personalities, different identities uh, being defined, in a sense, uh, in relation to other ones. I don't think we should ever take them literally. I don't think, um, you know, Tintoretto was particularly poor or even maybe had a particular sympathy with, with these very ordinary-looking apostles. Um, in a sense, these are the kind of badges of uh, this man, Christ's, uh, or this God, I should say, Christ's humility. This is what they, they reflect. Uh, it's an image of humility, really. I think, rather than a kind of uh, class identity. But still, the results are very, very different, and they serve these kind of differentiated audiences for art by this point. Whether, how they relate quite to Venice by this stage, that's different. different. But I kind of end uh, my book by arguing that, in a way, the individualism, individualism of these painters and, and architects and sculptors, indeed, led to, to some extent, the end of the tradition itself. It kind of burnt itself out in the fire of their, their individual expression. And that's, I think, an interesting thing when you're thinking about why the Venetian Renaissance comes to an end towards the end of the 16th century. In the last 25 years, I had this sense, of the, of the century, that is, I had this sense of a kind of chastened Venice, a Venice that was um, feeling that it had gone too far, that somehow it needed to return. Um, and of course, this reflects the, the age of the Counter-Reformation and its own sense of how, the, how, how, how um, maybe uh, the, 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 the culture, uh, religious culture as well, of the previous uh, century had gone, had become too secularized, too individualized, etc. But there is this sense, as you move into the last 20 years of the 16th century, that the Venetian artists pull back. And there's a wonderful... Uh, element of austerity and restraint in both the architecture and in some of the painting of uh, the later paintings of the artists we've been looking at. Um, this is, a, um, of course, in a way, Palladio's last great church. And you're looking at it from directly across the, uh, 
the Zat from the Zatare across the, this wide area of water. Uh, and it's a great shot, this, because you're, you're seeing a, what looks like it could be a kind of a votive temple, a square church. In fact, it isn't, but it just looks as if it is. Uh, and it's got that kind of compactness in it, but astonishing um, kind of spatial play with these fictive uh, temple facades. I think there's at least five or six there um, interlocking with one another. But the overall effect, and when you move inside of these pale colours, uh, this washed out uh, uh, austerity almost, I think is the word I would use here as we look towards the retro choir here. Uh, music would have come through here into the, into the body of the church. Um, so I, there's a kind of uh, move away from the splendours, if you like, and towards something more spiritualised, more aware of, um, of potential threat, uh, this terrible plague, uh, the loss of Venetian power as well. This is the point at which Venetian, Venice loses its power, really. Um, it starts to decline. Um, it's lost its connection with the East almost altogether, uh, but from the 1570s onwards, particularly uh, the Battle of Lepanto, um, which it won, uh, was merely proved to be uh, a fairly uh, false, for much a false dawn. So um, assuaged by problems from all sides, you get Tintoretto painting this fabulous uh, um, series of paintings, about uh, 50 plus paintings still in the Scuola di San Rocco, in this kind of scorched earth, I call it, <laughs> kind of feel to this, uh, this kind of, the, the, this, the, the, these paintings, a very reduced brushstroke, rough surfaces, um, strong chiaroscuro, sketchy outlines of figures, uh, kind of lurking in a half light uh, and enacting uh, charity. The same thing happens, this is my final slide, and I, it's where I end the book actually more or less, um, with these two fine paintings, another one from Washington, uh, one of the most wonderful Veronese's that I, I know, I think, um, is this late <coughs> uh, martyrdom and last communion of St. Lucy. And you can see how even Veronese, whose career had been decorative, aristocratic, colourful, um, reduces back, back down to this more chiaroscuro-based style. And uh, in a sense, in a sense, kind of um, takes, his work takes on something of the seriousness of, 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 of Tintoretto on of the late Titian and of the late Bassano. This is a wonderful painting I saw in New York only recently, uh, perhaps his very last painting, um, this wonderful painting of the baptism of Christ in a kind of uh, dark penumbra of uh, fluidity and, uh, and indeed of pain and suffering, a kind of tragedy in these works. So um, at this point, I think we're, we're looking at artists in their old age and they, yes, a whole generation kind of die off within 20 years of each other, Titian, Tintoretto, Bassano, and Veronese all go. Uh, and that is sometimes seen as enough to, uh, to think, well, that's why you have the crisis in the Renaissance tradition. That's why you have the end of the Renaissance in Venice. Um, I'm not sure there isn't something more to say about that, but just, just, just in, the, in the sense that these, uh, these artists um, pushed the individuality of their brushwork, the individuality of their, their artistic expression to a new extreme, and it became actually almost impossible for them to properly teach their pupils in the way that perhaps uh, Jacopo Bellini could teach Giovanni and Gentile. And so maybe uh, the individualism of, of, of the final expression of Venice in the Renaissance uh, is, um, is, is one cause of the end of the tradition. Thank you very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 